Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Welcome to Escaping Society. I'm Gumby. I'm Teresa. And uh, this is episode possibly 139, if that's the wrong number. Uh, who really gives a damn? <laughs> um, and this is Hobosan and Dimitri. And for this episode, well, let's start off with uh, how you doing, Teresa? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. I'm looking at sunny skies and a dog Potentially rolling in somebody's poop. Yeah. But not my poop, and it's not my dog, so I don't give a shit. Rufus, get your black ass out that shit. <laughs> <laughs> Dogs can have the best facial expressions. But other than that, uh, yeah, had a really good day in the woods, walking with some kids. Got paid for that. That's pretty cool. And... Um, yeah, a tree that's at the top of uh, where we stay at uh, was looking like it might get taken down, and it didn't. So God bless the cheap person that didn't pay for it to be taken all the way down. Yeah. I am having a fantastic week. Um, let's see. There is the pine vinegar cleaner that I've been I've mentioned before that I've been waiting on to see when it's ready. Um, we passed the 30-day mark, and I just wasn't sure if it was acidic enough. I didn't see any signs I expected to see, like an obvious smell of vinegar or anything. So Teresa uh, decided to order a couple of headlamps, um, which I, I think we just got them like minutes ago. And I think these headlamps that can plug in, what's it called, a USB charger? Mm-hmm. They can plug in are going to be game changers for us because that's been one of our challenges is lighting. We've got this little... Uh, light that has like a bendy neck on it that people use like i think musicians and orchestras use them to look at their sheet music and we've been using that for everything and some things it works pretty well for other things not so well but by the time you know i want to turn it on in the middle of the night to read i generally wake up like really early and it's not time to get out of bed and i want to do some reading that's my my main reading time um it's pretty depleted so to have more light options are going to be really great. And once we test them, we'll uh, pass on to you whether this is something that has been tried and tested and proven itself as a really useful thing in van life. But I'm excited about it. Um, but with that, I've got these little pH testing strips to finally test my vinegar. And lo and behold, I tested it, and it is like at the most acidic end, which is what you want. The real vinegary vinegar uh, or vinegar. And it is awesome, man. It still smells like piney, not like vinegar. So that is really exciting. Um, What was it, like a three point something? 3.0. Yeah, that's that's what, from the videos I've watched, kind of what I was going for. You could make it work at 4.0, but the woman doing the video, uh, Mary's Nest, that's her YouTube channel, Mary's Nest. So 
when she was doing the vinegar, she says she likes to push it to the more acidic end, 3.0. And sure enough, the colors matched up that it's about 3.0 if I'm reading this right. So it's time to decant and uh, it's almost time to clean the van. So we all immediately get to use it. And we might be sleeping in a van of like homemade pine vinegar cleaned with the scent inside. Oh, it's gonna be it's gonna be so exciting. Yeah. What a perfect way to start a spring. It's gonna be so much better than smelling the white vinegar that's just kind of nauseating after a certain point. Mm-hmm. Those white vinegars, they are nauseating. <laughs> so um and another great thing that happened was I've been talking about my pottery and how exciting that is. And uh, I don't know if I've I've shared some things on Facebook. Teresa and I have been talking about it. It's hard for me to keep up with what I've talked about in the podcast. But just really quickly, pottery is just such a deep thing. I mean, it's the earth itself. It's everywhere. And, and the reminder that the earth itself is a substance that lends itself to be shaped almost anything you can imagine to lend itself to to any shape you want to make of it even flutes things like that and that you apply the magic of fire and it becomes permanent before you apply the fire it's still malleable you don't like what you made uh splash another miracle on it water and it just dissolves right back i mean it is such a powerful example of how much the earth takes care of us which you know, this story is partly about the story of uh, the Buddha. So this will play a part in our next chapter when we get around to it. The Buddha also, part of his life story, um, is a a lesson in the earth being an ally for the Buddha as well. But I'm finding that so much right now in clay and just the, the actual flesh, the dirt all around me. I can clean it and process it into usable clay and then um, make whatever I want out of it. And it's just a whole new layer of, my God, how generous and giving and abundant this earth is. It's, it's just blowing my mind. Hey, what did you use to shape your clay bowl? What did you use? Um, it sound, that sounds like a pointed question. Are you asking something specific? I use a few tools. Yeah. What are the tools? All right. I use a, a piece of gourd, which is kind of too rotten. It's what we had around, but I can see the potential. Um, Andy Ward, who does the channel that I'm mainly learning from, uh, recommends this as like the primary, most important tool for the, the primitive potter. Um, you kind of file it down into a kidney bean shape and it's a great scraper. Um, But there's all kinds of things that I've seen him use. There's like a a deer rib, which I have collected, but I've not used on a pot yet. Um, An old credit card can be a handy scraper dipped in water. A smooth stone, which Teresa happened to have, that was given to her as a gift from uh, students we were working with last year. Um, Just sitting there, it's kind of a nice, you know, object. Like, oh, that's a nice gift. But now, lo and behold, perfect tool. (laughs) I mean, it's just amazing how things work out when you just try to, like, really pay attention to how your life unfolds. And we had gathered the gourd from this particular um, historic site that I guess they were doing a garden at some point and decided maybe to not do a garden anymore. So that was, like, the one and only gourd that we had access to from maybe a year or two ago. I had let it dry out, and unfortunately it did get a little older than useful for pottery. But it still is pretty—it works all right. Yeah, 
And yesterday I tried my first firing, which if you've ever done primitive pottery, that is the most nerve-wracking part of it because you put this effort into it. You've uh, gone through the whole process of cleaning the clay, which takes time, a few days to let it dry out and turn into something that you're ready to use. And then you mix it with the right ratio of sand or some other kind of temper. Um, Then you go through all the trouble of like, molding it into something and then polishing it, you know, like a couple days of of drying in stages, what they call leather dry, where you can shape it more and polish it. And then you let it dry for several days and finally you can fire it. And this is the point. This is the big, like, if it doesn't make it through this, you've got what's called sherds. I don't know why they call them sherds instead of shards, but broken pottery, which is still useful for firing future pots. But, uh, or you've got something that is almost ready to be used. So I fired it yesterday and it only took like 20 minutes of heating up the, no, no, probably more than that. I I took longer than you need to. About an hour of slowly heating up the pot um, because thermal shock is one of the the key factors in breaking a pot where you heat it up or it cools down too fast. It was a windy day, but it was like my only chance I'm going to get to do this in like a week. So I just decided to go for it, even though that's warned against. Don't do it on a windy day. I did it on a windy day anyway. I found this old tin bucket in the woods. Um, And so once the fire was burned down, I got a couple rocks and set the pot upside down. It was a bowl um, to have it upside down over the coals and to let air into it. That's why I set it on the rocks. And then I set the bucket over that on a couple more rocks, built the fire up really big around it. And for about 20 minutes, just piled on wood, burned it, let it burn down. And I heard some pops and I was like, all right, I knew this was an experiment. You know, I'm not, I've let go of my expectations. I know this probably broke the pot, but uh, when it cooled off, I took a stick and lifted that, that bucket and oh my God, my bowl didn't even have a crack in it. So that was, and still is super exciting. So amazing too. Yeah, this is the first step in like making mugs with handles and just all the stuff I want to make. And I've actually got two bowls here. One is uh, not been fired yet, and one has been fired because part of the magic of firing a pot, it's like alchemy. You have changed what it fundamentally is. Once it's been fired, it doesn't go back to what it was before. So here's the sound of a dry pot that has not been fired. A kind of a dull, dry-sounding thud. Yeah, it almost sounds like a light wood or something. Yeah, and here's the sound of a fired pot. That metallic plink is music to a potter's ears. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's just so, so good. Ooh, and you're going to try to seal it? Yeah, so before we use this bowl, one more step is to seal it. Um... Some people think you need to put glaze over a pot. They say it's unsafe to use primitive pottery because the danger is that if I eat soup in this pot, um, it's porous. If I put a liquid in there, it will eventually start leaking through, which has its own uses, like filtering water. Um, but it will get into the uh, the material of even a fired pot. And If I don't have a good way to clean it really thoroughly and keep it safe, it could be a place that bacteria could harbor. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm not overly worried about. I mean, all the ways we live, Jesus Christ, is par for the course. But uh, 
yeah, you can actually seal it to even address that small danger with, um, there's a number of ways to do it. I'm going to try milk. So I'm not quite sure how to do it. I'm going to have to research a little bit, but something about wiping milk, cooking it in there, and it will seal the pot. And then it will be totally ready to be used for eating or whatever I want. Or you can boil oatmeal. But uh, there's a cornstarch. That's another one. There's a number of things you can use that are uh, natural things that you can scavenge, that you can dumpster dive to seal your pot. But even if you didn't do that, uh, as long as you cleaned it thoroughly and let it dry thoroughly, I mean, it's a very small danger. But I'm going to take the extra precaution just because I want to learn about it. And again, just being an observer of what Gumby is doing, I was thinking the other day about how, um, you know, how magical it is to form things just from the the earth, the dirt, the dust, and how it kind of reminds me of a story of something somewhere along the lines of like Adam and Eve and how Eve was, uh, well, Adam was formed from the dirt, right? He was formed from the dust. And then Eve, for some reason, uh, in the story, God decided to take out a rib from Adam and form Eve. Now, obviously, I have no idea what the influences for these biblical stories are, but hearing about like how you can help to shape and smooth the the pottery with a deer rib, I was like, you know, I wonder if there's something that got, uh, when I say corrupted, like the story got messed up, you know, once again, handed down through the ages, gotten into some uh, corrupt hands and misinterpreted. But think about the beauty of like, we are as humans, like one of the creation stories that we have is like, we came from the earth. We're like jars of clay, you know, we're formed in a way from a rib. And you find that theme in so many ancient stories of people being formed from dirt, mud, clay. And the more I work with pottery, the more I'm I'm, I'm seeing that parallel. It's not even, it's not even that metaphorical. It's, it's a reminder of what we actually are. We are the earth itself taking form and walking around. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Yeah, it's it's really... Uh, so many of the experiences out here in the primitive skills aren't just independence. I mean, that's a powerful part of it, to gain your independence. But it's to make sense of our, our lives. Um, the more I learn out here, the more I feel like my life makes sense. These existential questions people ponder, you know, on their computer screens, pouring through books, inside their houses... They'll never find those answers without this deep, gritty connection, this ancient link. That's my belief anyway. I don't see how you could find those answers. I certainly wasn't making any headway in finding any answers until I got out here. And it's not the kind of answer that I could write a book about or explain to somebody. It's more the kind of knowledge that Don Juan described, something that changes you, a different energy vibration, a different level, something... Something that words just can't touch. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's profound. And I'm really grateful. It's been a really tremendous week experimenting with the things I've done. And, uh, you know, all experiments are good. Some experiments fail and I wouldn't feel so good, but I've been really lucky because uh, the experiments I've been doing have been succeeding lately. So that, of course, is always an added boost. Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to say before we launch into our uh, topic? No, not really. All right, so we're going to pick up the story of Siddhartha Gautama, um, and we're going to pick it up from where we left off 
in the last, uh, this was like two years ago, we did our last chapter, and that was Hobosen and the Four Passing Sights. Well, that was a, two years ago? That was two years ago. We were in Danville, Virginia, and we were on our way to Waynesboro. That was the northern tip of the Blue Ridge Parkway. Wow. Yeah. So, wow, I'm glad to be getting back into it because this story is so rich. And I really encourage you, if you haven't listened to that episode and the episode preceding it, Hobosen! Uh, we've done two chapters so far. So, yeah, picking up from there, we're, this is the, the part of the hobo, uh, hobo's life. Huh? The uh, Buddha's life where he had seen the four passing sites. He'd gone out from the kingdom and seen... A person who was dying, a person who was, no, a person who was dead, a person who was old, and a person who was sick. He'd never seen these things before because his father had sheltered him from these type of sights because it was prophesied that if he uh, renounced the world, he would leave the kingdom. And um, his father didn't want that. He wanted the best for his son, and what his father thought was the best for his son was to carry on, um, you might say, the royal lineage, you know, to be a king, a powerful man. He didn't want his son out there embracing poverty and God knows what. So out of goodwill, not to trap Buddha or do anything bad to him, he was trying to protect his son. And a powerful lesson in that too, how many parents uh, maybe shelter their kids from the very things that would help them grow, the very things they need the most in life out of a misplaced sense of safety safety that can't be found in this world. And that's what the four passing sights showed the Buddha. All the things he was taught to love, all the things that he was taught that he should be attached to, they meant nothing. Because this idea of safety meant nothing when he understood the depth, the truth, that he was going to get old. Nothing would stop that. He could be sick at any time. He was powerless against that, against something so small you can't even see it, germs. Um, all the many things that get us sick, all the little influences that can just tip the scales of our health. And he was going to die. And underneath whatever beauty a person possessed in their youth, there's these repulsive smells, these oozes, the, the things that are inside the body. It's just a superficial packaging. Is this really something to like um, try to dig our roots into as a place of safety? The body is a passing experience. And so his fourth sight that he saw was a person, a seeker, a renunciant, someone who'd given it all up and had decided to go off on their own to look for a deeper truth. And that inspired him. So the Buddha went back to the kingdom, and this was an idea that was germinating in his mind, and it was bothering him. All the things that used to bring him joy so recently seemed hollow now. And... As I try to relate this story, keep in mind that I'm just a hobo. I am not a Buddhist scholar. I don't even consider myself a practicing Buddhist anymore. I've been inspired by this story, and I do uh, meditate. I try to meditate twice a day, Um, but this is just our personal exploration of the story. So if you're more familiar with uh, Buddhism and we say something that uh, is off, is wrong— Um, Just recognize we're just two people talking. I'm not trying to present this like if this is your introduction to Buddhism, please find a better introduction to Buddhism. If you just want to hear two people talking about their ideas about it, that's what you've got here. So the Buddha, with this discontent, it culminated one night as he's in his his chamber. And uh, one thing the Buddha is known to really love was sex. He had concubines everywhere. 
And after a night of uh, frivolity, we can imagine an orgy, a feast, just partying. Um, the Buddha wakes up and he looks around the chamber and the women are all sleeping and snoring and drooling and farting and Ew. just in all these bad positions. And with his new understanding of what this passing life is, he's really turned off. He's like, how am I, how was I finding such desire and attraction in this? These are just passing clouds. These mean nothing. These, these forms, these bodies. And it's this night that he realizes he's, it's time for him to leave the kingdom. Um, he goes one last time to visit his wife, um, whose name is, oh, I'm going to, I think it's Yasodara. Let me look at my notes and make sure I got that right. Yep. Yasodara and his infant son, Rahula. And, uh, it's funny that he named his son Rahula cause that means tether. It's like something in him already realized that like this family life, this home life was not for him. It was a tether. It was something that was going to attest to hold him back. So he takes one last look, and he doesn't go in to uh, say goodbye or anything, and there's been a lot of debate over this scene in the Buddha's life. Was it cold-hearted? What does it mean that he didn't go and say goodbye? Some people said it was because he knew that if he went in and tried to explain what he was doing, they wouldn't understand, and they just might persuade him not to go. He loved his wife. He loved his son. But he also knew that these passing lives, this love, there was something deeper that was more important for him than this changing relationship. He wanted to find something that he could break free and if he could find a way possibly share with the rest of the world. It was more important to him than just the traditional, I love this person, this fixation on one form that will also age, grow old, die, could get sick, just this powerlessness. He wanted freedom. So he leaves that room after looking at his wife and his son and he, uh, with his charioteer, Chandaka, and his horse, which is funny that they mention the horse. The horse doesn't play a big part in the story, and yet we remember the name of the horse for some reason, Kanthaka. And there's this beautiful scene that's kind of painted in the story where they leave the kingdom. He says, Chandaka, I want to leave, and um, I want your help. Can you uh, ride with me out of the kingdom? I'm leaving, and I don't want you to tell anybody. And Chandaka, a loyal servant, a loyal charioteer to the Buddha, um, agrees. And so while everybody else in the kingdom is asleep, the Buddha is awake. Hmm. And the Buddha, under the darkness of night, the quiet of the night, they leave the kingdom. And they head off into the forest. And they come to a river, Anomia. Again, it's funny the names that are recorded. Like, it's important to remember the name of this river. I find almost an animistic sentiment hmm. in that. And uh, depending on which version of the story, the, the story of the Buddha is really interesting because it's it's hard to d divide the biography, which is almost certainly there. This seems to be a real person whose life uh, is depicted in many ways in realistic terms in this story, and yet it's also mixed with stuff that's kind of hard to believe by our standards. So the mythology and the reality of the Buddha are blurred. And to me, there's a lesson in that. Does it really matter? Mm-hmm. Do we really just want the cold, dry facts? What does that serve us? Is it not better to mix it with the mythology of the man's message to give a, a deeper richness in the lessons? So this was the beginning of his great departure, renunciation. 
This is where he turned away from all the things he was taught were valuable and went to seek something deeper. And I really find that powerful. Um, Teresa and I the other night were talking about like, um, we were considering how people in tribes, they would typically learn one skill just to uh, exist in this life that's closer to the earth before industrialization, before our civilization, you needed to have a working knowledge of many things. But that doesn't mean you were really good at that thing. You might be really good at one thing. Maybe you're a hunter, but you don't know much about making bows. You rely on another person who's really good at making bows, but they're not that good at stalking. Maybe they hurt their leg. They're just not a good hunter, but they can make bows to perfection. I've heard stories of bow makers that were so skilled that a hunter could return a bow to them and say, I don't know what's wrong. It's just not shooting right. Is there anything you can do? And that a bow maker could look at a bow, look at it so carefully that they could lick their thumb, rub a spot, and hand it back. (laughs) Now, again, sounds like mythology, right? But is it? And even if it is, even if nobody actually did that, does that not harbor the spirit of some, of a master. It helps us remember this deep connection. It doesn't really matter whether we fact check whether anybody ever actually did that, which would be impossible anyway. It's not the point of the story. It's not what it's trying to preserve. So in this tribe of people that are learning, like, here's the potter. Here's possibly the soap maker in another tribe. I don't know if that was actually a job. The hunter, the bow maker, the tracker, the scout. The scout alone was someone who typically would try to develop all skills. And so I realized that uh, the way Teresa and I are trying to are learning, um, and this was told to me by Tom Brown, that Tom Brown in his classes said, I'm training my students to be scouts, not just typical people that would be in the village. They wouldn't know how to do all the things that I'm trying to teach you. I'm trying to teach you everything. It's the scout who would wander away from the tribe. And because they would wander so far away from their tribe into uncharted, unknown, dangerous territory, they would need a working knowledge of all the skills in a way that the typical person who uh, was tied more closely to the village wouldn't necessarily need. And so I'm realizing to escape society, like that's kind of what we need. We need scout level skills. We can hopefully meet other people and blend our skills in with them because there's no doubt that we're not going to be good at every skill, but we hopefully can develop a working knowledge of as many skills as possible. And so that's the goal. And uh, I find that uh, Teresa's kind of wired to the scouting aspect. I work on the skills more. And Teresa really enjoys, like, it's amazing to walk with her sometimes because she'll just spot um, pine sap that we could use for sealing pots, for glue. Uh, she'll spot deer antlers that have multiple uses, flint napping, uh, making bone tools, buttons. Um, she's really got an eye for that and seems to take to that in a way that every time she picks up a skill, um, I often like tease her that she can't finish a skill. She's never, oh, well, I won't, I won't say never, but rarely actually finishes a skill. She'll start something and then put it down, but she will be pulled to wander and observe. And it occurred to me the other day, like, wow, that in itself is a valuable part 
of the tribe, the people that want to go off and wander and bring back information to observe. Yeah, it's like you and me together equals uh, like somewhat of a scout. Or at least a partly functioning adult. <laughs> um, I don't know if I go that far. <laughs> and, oh man, I wish I could remember all the things that we were uh, reflecting on around that, because one of the things that it made me think of was a ronin mm-hmm. in Japanese culture. It's always been a, I think it's in our nature to serve something, to be a part of a tribe. A samurai had a retainer, a master. And a samurai without a master was known as a ronin. Now, there's something romantic about a ronin, about a scout, about a rogue, about uh, a vagabond, about a hobo. This person that goes off, sometimes by themselves, sometimes with a companion, but who is breaking out of the community. There's something romantic about that, but there's also something kind of sad and tragic about it. That's usually a person who would rather have the community. For whatever reason. Even the Buddha, when I think about this story, it's not that he didn't like people. It's that he was after something, some truth, that he knew that he had to step away. Mm -hmm. And even then, as we'll recount more of the story of the Buddha, he tried to get it from people. That was his first go-to. I want to be around people. I just want to find the people that can teach me what I'm, I'm beginning to realize is the most important thing I can learn. How to break free of the cycle of samsara, this illusion this illusion. So there's something tragic about that in the Ronin, in the scout, but it's something necessary. And so it's sort of a sacred job that we take on when we become hobos. Again, you don't have to be a sacred hobo. You could just be some drunk out there in the woods, you know, jumping trains. It's not intrinsically sacred, but it's the kind of life that if you develop that, I feel like turns into a sacred job, a sacred niche. Yeah, we were talking about um, purpose as well. Like, Gumby, you have all these skills, but not a whole lot of people, like a tribe, to share them with. And so it's it's in a way kind of tragic because <laughs> here you are, like, you know, doing your best to learn all these skills, but, but then what? You know, there's not much of a... Um, well, I don't want to say there's not much of a purpose, but it's not like you have something to work towards other than your own personal, uh, I don't know. Freedom? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I somewhat agree with you. I think there is a purpose, but like the Buddha, I feel like what a person needs to do is develop themselves first, test their theory Don't immediately jump in and try to change things, because if you haven't changed yourself, if you haven't proved that the changes that you think should happen um, work, you're more apt to mislead the people around you. We have a world full of people who have not lived their truths and are trying to force other people into the truth that they have not tested and realized themselves. So we have all these people misleading each other. And I feel like the Buddha, uh, the scout... um, The hobo who's really trying to develop something is also, that's the purpose. Now, hopefully you'll have the good fortune, as I'm having often, to uh, at least pass on part of that to kids, to someone, uh, through the podcast even. Little ways to pass on what you're exploring. But even if you don't, 
just like I was talking about the knowledge of the the clay, you know, that it's something that words can't touch. It's something that can't be written in a book. It's it's a it's an energetic thing. It's something that changes you from the inside. I believe that if we develop these skills, this freedom, that that alone, that the change you made in yourself without even trying to teach other people, I think it has an impact. I think we're all connected on some layer and that for everything that gets free, this is one of the early, I'm jumping ahead after the Buddha's death, but there was a big division. Um, when the Buddha died, I think, oh, I don't, I don't know how many years, it wasn't too terribly long after the death of the Buddha, there was a big meeting where the people came together that remembered the teachings of the Buddha and wanted to set it down somehow to to preserve this truth because they began to realize the danger of like, oh my God, we're going to lose this. We need to do something. And out of this meeting sprung 18 different schools of Buddhism. Mm. I believe it was 18, 16, 18, something, somewhere around that number. And of all those schools of Buddhism, only one of those original schools remains, and it's what we call Theravada Buddhism. The goal of Theravada is to become what's called an arhat. An arhat is a solitary practitioner that is only seeking their own liberation. Interesting. Now, they believe that that is the path of the Buddha, to seek your own liberation. Now, what you do with that You won't know until you're liberated. You can't see it from here. You're still looking at the inside of your prison walls. Once you're liberated, truly liberated, then you'll know what to do. There's nothing outside of your grasp. You're liberated. You're free from all these chains of ignorance. You're connected to everything. I alone am. You are the Buddha, and so is everything else. It's not like a bunch of separate Buddhas. It's like one Buddha that you're a part of. A while after that comes Mahayana Buddhism. And so now we kind of see that path of the Arhat because usually what you're introduced to is some variation, including even Zen Buddhism, which is a branch of Mahayana Buddhism, that favors the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva takes a vow Mm -hmm. that I will not achieve full liberation until every being has achieved full liberation. That's kind of... (laughs) <laughs> in a way, like from where I look at it now, it almost sounds like an excuse. Yeah, it's like, well, I'm not going like to give I c- up anything unless everybody gives it up. Yeah, yeah. Derek Jensen. <laughs> I could achieve full liberation, but I care so much that I'm not going to. Uh-uh. Yeah. But I know it's not really that, that another thing the Buddha taught was limitless compassion. And so it's more of a, a different focus. Instead of the freedom, it's compa- It's almost like the liberal conservative debate, the root of that. The liberals imagine they're the most conservative people. And indeed, doesn't that sound a little liberal? Wait, that, that the stance? liberals? The liberal compassion, bodhisattva, oh, I will not be liberated f- until everything's liberated. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that sound yeah, like a until, little more lefty? Yeah, until everyone has like the exact same stuff, like equity and stuff. Or as the Arhat would say, we are all Buddha. We all have the chance of becoming completely liberated, but you need to find your own way there. Right. That sounds a little more, by our modern standards, kind of right-wing, and that's kind of where I am with more a lot of views. Like, I can't free anybody. I can try to free myself, and it's up to you how much of that you want to learn from, what you want to interpret that, how you what you want to do with that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So the Buddha... You know, he's out there and uh, he uh, 
he's with his charioteer, um, Chantaka, and they turn away, and the Buddhist by himself. And I've heard the story where he encounters a hunter, and he asks the hunter, can I uh, trade clothes with you? And the hunter readily agrees. He's in his princely robes and everything, and the hunter's got rags. So he trades clothes with him. And now he's in rags, and he uh, asked to borrow, um, actually, I believe before Shantaka left, he asked to borrow Shantaka's sword and shaved his head. This is another part of the story that I feel like has so many deep lessons. This is what I love about the story is you can take every little bit of it and turn it into a platform of exploration. Shaving the head. Why did he shave his head? He's not joining a, a neo-Nazi cult. He didn't become a white supremacist. Like, why do he shave his head? <laughs> the Aryan Brotherhood. <laughs> why do he shave his head, Teresa? Well, um, without knowing too much about it, from my own experience, I could just say... Uh, Nobody knows about it. Nobody was there. This is a 2,500-year-old story. I would say that it's a sign of a new beginning, like the regrowth of your hair from nothing that's that is a very powerful thing to uh, experience and also like uh, to a lesser extent um you know the vanity like showing that you that you're not attached to your hair uh what else you got well i like the new beginning i hadn't thought about that angle but i think there might be something to that um i was thinking more about the vanity aspect um you know our hair is such a simple not if you're like me, uh, your hair is not much of a symbol at all. But, um, <laughs> but hair has always been a symbol, even in Viking cultures. You know, like I was just reading about bone tools in ancient times and about how they made uh, bone combs. And the Vikings were known for taking fastidious care of their hair. One of the things that was remarked on with the New World when uh, Europeans started coming over here is how much time the Indians spent with their hair. Even though some of their hair hairdos, when we look at pictures, seem bizarre to us, to them, they were just meticulous and really uh, vain about their hair. Hair has always been a symbol of, I care how people see me. It's, a, it's an investment in how people see you. To do away with the hair is a symbol of I'm turning away from that. I don't need your validation anymore. I don't think you can understand even what I'm seeking, and I, I don't want to hinge what I'm seeking on your validation. I'm completely turning away from it. I, I don't care if you see me as ugly. I don't care if you see me as strange. I don't care if the whole community doesn't accept me anymore because everybody's got a certain hairdo and I've just done something uh, that makes me look like stand out and look completely different. I'm after something deeper. Right. So that symbol of the renunciant, I think it's powerful and there's a lot to be said in just that simple act of shaving your head. Um, and I know you had some thoughts on uh, renunciation, Teresa. You got anything before we uh, get into this... Uh, the Great Departure, The Great Renunciation, before we go further in the story? Hmm. Wonder what those thoughts were. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, I have, in the past, I have renounced uh, meat. I was a vegetarian for about seven years. Um, I've renounced uh, a lot of things that are considered signs of wealth in our society, um, 
for a while I was um, trying to practice uh, abstinence as a brahmachari. And uh, yeah, I guess all of those things really do give you an insight into how much preoccupation you might have with those worldly things when you don't, when you're not participating in them. And I feel like renunciation is such a huge, important part of a sacred path, of a seeker. Um, And it's a part that nowadays I feel like we've all but done away with. Nobody really tries to renounce much of anything. Maybe we give it some lip service at a certain time of year with a certain holiday, which is something. You know, I don't want to say it's just nothing. It is something. But it's not the the complete like peace pilgrim. There's a renunciant. Um, even Christopher McCandless, Super Tramp. There's a renunciant. Someone who is actually turning away. And nobody, I mean, I don't want to say nobody can tell you how to be a renunciant because people do it all the time. Actually, people seek teachers who tell them what they need to get rid of. And I don't want to say that that doesn't work. But personally, where I'm at right now, I feel like it's more important to find to explore yourself to know what you renounce. And it's always going to hurt. It's always going to be not just the stuff you're ready to get rid of. That's already, that's just token gestures. It's the stuff that you care about. Yeah. It's the bonfire in your backyard with your furniture. It's the giving away things you've crafted with your own hands that you love, that Mm -hmm. you know when you give them away, you will probably never see those things again. That's part of renunciation. It's taking a risk. It's always going to be dangerous. But the renunciant, I feel like, understands that life is intrinsically dangerous. I'm not doing something more dangerous, even though everybody's going to see it like that. Everybody's going to look at it like that, that I'm taking the dangerous path. I feel like what the Buddha realized in the four passing sites and what the renunciant sees during their great departure is that the danger is always there. But is the danger worth it? Are you taking dangers that will could actually foster something, lead somewhere, be meaningful, or are you just living a normal dangerous life? <laughs> um, yeah, there's just so much to be said about renunciation, and it's a, it's a favorite topic of mine because I explore it all the time. Um, Your fasting day. Yeah, I'll talk about that later when we get to his uh, a later chapter in the Buddhist life. But yeah, Teresa and I fast every Sunday. That's an example of dipping our toes into renunciation. And uh, yeah, I've actually got a lot more to say about that. So please do remind me to come back to that. There's also, um, there can be a preoccupation with the the thing that you're renouncing itself. And so that is a, you know something that you have to watch. You have to be constantly at attention to notice what is actually going on? No, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? All right. So vegetarianism um, is, it can be a hot button issue for a lot of people. And for me, I tried not to um, push my views. I tried not to, you know, say anything. If someone was eating meat, I wasn't like, oh, God, you're a nasty meat eater. Don't you care about animals? Because what I learned after that time was that I am missing a component of that. I might be okay myself not eating meat, but what is happening around me? Is there Are there animals that are being slaughtered and... 
they are then just being discarded. And what do I think about that? Like, how much do I value life? Um, so yeah, that's just, uh, a, a little window into it. Um, getting distracted by what you're doing, but, uh, if you're preoccupied with like veganism or some sort of ism and you're really getting attached to that, then, well, then your renunciation has just led you to another attachment, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And so I like to imagine the Buddha out there who's had his whole life up to this point in the kingdom. Nothing has been denied him. All the best food, all the best comforts, uh, all the women he can have sex with, including a wife who loves him, who's devoted to him. And it's not like he's sneaking around behind her back. It's just like she wants him to be happy. He's got everything. Now he's got a child to carry on his name. He gets to be a father with plenty of help to raise the child, community support. He's got everything our culture can offer. And he, who has this many attachments has decided to seek a path to turn away into this cold, uncertain, itchy, uh, scary world full of dangers that aren't disguised, blatant dangers and disguised dangers. And I like to think about those first nights that the Buddha, for the first time, Siddhartha Gautama, Prince Siddhartha Gautama, laid on that bare ground. We can presume he wasn't a scout. He didn't have survival skills. He didn't even build a leaf hut. He didn't even know that people, like, got sick and died and stuff. Yeah, he just learned that. Yeah. So here's this newbie, I mean, just complete, wet-behind-the-ears, naive prince going off into the world, the big, scary world, and apparently into the forest first, out into the woods. And just what kind of determination doesn't, Send him back the first night, you know? (laughs) So I'm going to leave the story there. We're going to take a break. I really don't want this to be a long droning on episode because I'm thinking about Basho and his uh, haikus. And uh, I really think we cut to the heart of things like this when we try to keep them brief. So we're going to take a break. With record numbers of our people flocking to the outdoors, we've enlisted seasoned outdoorsmen, experienced hunter, and all-around grubby hillbilly Sam Deerlick Eris to help educate us. Welcome, Mr. Eris. Well, just call me Junior. Now, when you go camping, the goal is to make your campsite look as much, just as much like your own backyard as possible, and to do that, you'll need lots of stuff, a couple pickup fulls at least. The goal is to still feel like you're home inside, but have just changed the view through your window. As a gesture of neighborliness, I like to immediately play some kind of music that everybody can appreciate as loud as possible. You know, something like Alabama or Reba McIntyre, stuff that goes good with Budweiser and neglected teeth. If your cousin and them are laid off and can bring another truck, hell, load up a couple of motorbikes. Hiking takes forever and get your creases greasy, but a good bike will punch a hole right through that forest like buckshot through butter. And who doesn't love the ear-splitting roar of an engine? Expert tip, it also drowns out scary nature noises so the young'uns can sleep better. Hmm. Well, th- thanks for that, Junior. Uh, since you brought up the nature, I wonder if you'd be willing to share some tips on how to interact with the nature a safely. <laughs> tips? Hell, I'll give you the whole thing. Let's start with trees. We ain't talking domesticated ornamental little yard shrubs now. Forest trees are big, wild, and dangerous. They will fall on you, try and poke your eyes out, and they will kill you if you let them. 
You got to establish your dominance at least by the first couple of days or they will not respect you. Right off, I pick out the biggest one to throw things at it, show I ain't scared. Knives, a hatchet, hell, shooting at it works too. I'll also, now this is life experience talking now, hell, I'll also pick out the biggest one I can handle and cut it down, preferably at night so the chainsaw sounds will be heard further by other trees. You are very interesting. Uh, That provides firewood as well? I'm glad you brought that up. There's a lot of myths out there about camping, and here's one I hear all the time. Wood burns. Bullshit. You ever try to hold a lighter to a log? (laughs) Bubba, you'll be cold for a long time. But here's something cool. You know all that stuff you brought? Well, it turns into trash, and lots of it. What to do with it? I see people take all day bagging it and putting that nasty stuff right back in their trucks, like they're going to take it home and frame it or something. The professional woodsman knows that trash burns, especially plastic. I spent many a night warmed by a trash fire, and to this day, the incense of a melting weenie bag takes me right back to the woods. As a courtesy, I like to leave a pile of trash in the fire pit to give less experienced campers a head start after I'm gone. Glass bottles are harder to burn, but your youngins can have lots of fun playing bust the bottle. Throw some screws and nails out there, too, to keep bears away. Bears don't wear shoes. It's why it's called barefoot. You don't learn that in school, son. Indeed. Well, Junior, our time is nearly up. Are there any final words to share to help the public enjoy a fun and safe nature outing? Well, to be blunt, shit happens. All that beer and greasy food is going to lube your pipes, and in the woods we have saying, never trust a fart. I know, I know, competitive farting games around the campfire are an old favorite, and it's all fun till somebody shits themselves, and somebody will. You're going to need running water, and once again, nature provides. If you're young and flexible, shit right in the creek. It's nature's toilet. If you're older, get as close as you can. You can throw toilet paper, feminine products, crusty undies, shit, even auto parts and batteries right in. No harm done. Sometimes we have boat races with our shitty draws. It all goes back to God. Now don't be one of those damn fools that kills themselves walking into the woods and buries their shit like a cat. When you wipe, you want to wrap your hand in toilet paper till it's about honeydew size, then leave it around camp. That keeps away critters like snakes who hate the smell of shit. You ever see a snake eating shit? Me neither. You're welcome. Oh, thank you so much for all of your deep woods wisdom, Junior. I hope everyone's learned something. Until next time, please camp responsibly, stay safe, and leave some white trash for the next nature enthusiast. Hi, my name's Gumby. And I'm Teresa. We like to laugh and have fun here at Escaping Society. But right now, we'd like to take a moment to talk about something a little more serious. Do you know a dog who was born without thumbs? Sure, we all do. Every day, thousands of dogs without thumbs are forced into lives of dependency, deprived of the ability to hitchhike, to turn doorknobs, thumb wrestling, or to give high fives. They can only give high fours. In our own lives, we have one of these special needs dogs. Over the past 12 years, I have seen the frustration in my dog's eyes when he wants to approve of something, but cannot give me a thumbs up. We like to think of him not as thumby-capped, but as toe-capable. For a small donation, we, as healthcare providers for our own thumbless best friend, can continue to provide services such as door opening, 
feeding, and the occasional toileting assistance. For a larger donation, we may even be able to buy him new thumbs. We don't know. So please, reach deep down in your pockets and your hearts and send us a donation today. Try doing it without thumbs. When last we left the Buddha, he was about to freeze his ass off in the forest. (laughs) So the Buddha first sought teachers. And he wanted human teachers because he thought that's what it meant to seek a teacher. So the first teacher that he sought was Alara Kalama. And this was like the most famous teacher in those days. Like he was known as the person you went to if you wanted to obtain enlightenment, if you were on a seeker renunciate path. So he studied with this teacher and quickly learned everything the teacher could tell him about concentration, yoga poses, different uh, ways to meditate, um, a lot of really valuable techniques. And when he had mastered everything the teacher could give him, the teacher said, you are ready. I I think you could fill my shoes. Like, you should be the new teacher. I want to, to pass on this teaching to you. And uh, the Buddha had realized that for all he had learned under this great man, he still was subject to aging and disease and death. He had not gained liberation from any of those things. There had to be a way to liberate himself from these chains as he saw it. Yeah, I was going to say, this part of Buddha's story, well, there's a lot of parts in it that are confusing to me at times, but this one, I think I just, sitting here, I think I just understood on a different level what he was trying to do. Because you can have a lot of practices right now as you are in this world, but still, no matter how good you do your yoga and how much you meditate, how long you meditate, can you really even think about your own death or getting sick or hurt uh, and getting old? Can you really think about that and be so detached? So those are kind of like the, in my opinion, like the three marks of how is this going? Like, what's my rate of, uh, like, where am I at in my practice? Yeah, when I consider that now, my first reaction now from the things I think is sort of a negative reaction, like escape from death. That almost sounds like transhumanist, you know? Like, mm, Yeah, that's, where, you know, that's certainly where the transhumanists are trying to take that. He's wanting freedom, it sounds to me, from things that I believe are natural and that we should accept. But what I realize, you know, that's just my initial reaction. That's not what he wants freedom from. There's something wrong. He's recognizing there's something wrong with this. It scares me. It scares everybody around me. It's bad. Why is it bad? There's something wrong with this. To me, it's more of an acknowledgement. Like, I want freedom from whatever is this thing that's wrong around these things, you know? It's, uh, I, I feel like it's his initial glimpse into dukkha. And what dukkha is, it's more of an image than a, a Webster's Dictionary definition. And the image of it is a wobbly me- a wheel on a chariot, that it's on the hub crooked. And so there's something wrong. There's something off. It's a whir, 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 that wobbly wheel. And I feel like that's what he's feeling, even though he doesn't have the words for it yet. Like, I don't feel like I'm free. I can concentrate my mind. I can practice all these yoga poses you've taught me, but I still feel there's there's something wrong. 
in my relationship with these things. Yeah, like something is pulling you away from your natural state of equanimity. Like something's always pulling you to worry about those things. Yeah. And so when the Buddha realized that he hadn't obtained the liberation he was after, I would imagine at this time that he'd refined understanding what he's after more because he hadn't gotten it. And so now he knows what's missing. So I would imagine, and I'm saying I would imagine because I don't really hear this part hashed out in the story much. I don't hear a whole lot of emphasis to me that I've run into of this is a much wiser man. He just mastered everything the most famous teacher in the country could give him until that, that teacher was ready to step aside. This was a much wiser man than the spoiled prince that left the kingdom. But he still wanted a teacher that could teach him how to liberate himself. He wanted that that final uh, guide. He could feel something was there, and it hadn't quite been addressed in his last teacher. So then he found Udaka. Now, Udaka was a teacher, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing any of these words right. Udaka was a teacher who was known for his cleverness. He was a very clever teacher. What does clever mean? I don't know. That's up for interpretation. But I imagine like Mr. Miyagi. He's a very clever guy. <laughs> you know, he's a coyote on. teacher. Yeah. yeah. So again, the Buddha studies under this man, soars through everything he's got to give him, masters everything. Once again, this man is like, look, you can be my successor. You, I've never seen a student like this. Um, I would be a fraud as a teacher if I didn't admit, holy crap, you are the shit. Like, <laughs> you know. So the Buddha, he's just like, he wants it so bad. Which is interesting. Yeah, I, I, to me, that's what I hear about the Buddha. I feel like people will tend to worship people like this and kind of like, oh, look, he's the he's special in this way. I hear a man, then this is the part of the story that's the most powerful for me, a man that wants it with everything. That's the power of the Buddha to me. Not that he's like some son of God or golden skin or any of that stuff. So he studies under this man, and it's at this point that I he makes this really important realization, which is this, after he'd mastered everything the two best teachers he could find could give him. They gave me valuable stuff. That was not a waste of time. And you can tell he thought that, because if you study the way of the Buddha, I hesitate to say religion, but the path the Buddha set out in his life when he began to teach, so much of the meditation and uh, even aspects of the yoga are still there. He kept it. Not everything that you read in Buddhism was originated from the Buddha. He kept the parts that were already there and were good. He didn't invent the whole damn thing. And he didn't pretend to. But if that's all you kind of encounter, you might be uh, tempted to think that. And that's when he made the realization that this last thing, this liberation, I can't get from another human being. Hmm. I've got to do this myself. To me, this is all spelling out such an important path of the, the renunciant. Consider the hobo. Consider our path, Teresa. When we set out to begin to try to find something um, like seekers, we learn from people, right? Mm-hmm. We're learning, I'm learning from Andy Ward how to do pottery. Right. And these skills themselves have lessons in them, but they're not the thing. They're not like the liberation, the freedom. So... We learn from people. It's not time wasted. But that final thing, that final thing that changes you, that you always like, you know, when you wake up at night, you're like, that would be the thing I'm aiming for. I wish I was at least a little closer to that or something. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's that that is you. It's like your personal development. Nobody can do that for you. And I feel like this is the where the Buddha's at in his story of renunciation. Yeah. I mean, taking it back to the pottery example you were just saying, Andy Ward, your YouTube teacher there, he could tell you every kind of descriptive way of how to do it. And you could parrot it back. You know, you could Per, like you could pretend like you know it, but until your hands know it, until you're in the pottery and you feel it, you haven't known it. So just in that same way, when you have a teacher of, you know, how to become free, how can you feel any of that unless you actually do it? Yeah. And it's interesting what he did after that, because once he owned it. He's like, I've got to do this. Nobody can give this to me. I've gotten some good tools here, really good tools. Now I need to do, uh, I need to take that leap of faith. It's Carlos Castaneda when Don Juan's leaving the world and he's at the cliff. It's Jesus when he goes into the desert. You know, it's that, that leap of faith. Um, and it's interesting that that leap of faith for him was asceticism. So he began to explore, To like, when I look at that story, I see somebody who like wasn't seeking discomfort. He just wasn't holding on to comfort anymore. That was his renunciation up to this point. So he went to teachers, and I didn't hear any stories of him laying on a bed of nails or you know anything specifically meant to cause discomfort. He just wasn't avoiding it. But now, the way he's going to try to learn from himself is to renounce the body to subject it to extreme discomfort, extreme hunger, extreme fasting. Uh, it was said he didn't bathe. He was filthy. He was horrible. He looked like a monster. He had his fucking hair grown. I mean, just a wild man, naked, covered with filth, skin and bones, uh, laying on like rocks and just as uncomfortable as he could make himself because his belief was that if he could deny the body, the body was a spoiled brat that was holding him back. It was because of the needs of the body that he was anchored to this world and therefore anchored to the wheel of samsara, mm -hmm. to aging, disease, death. But if you denied the body, if you could break that bond, that earthly tether, then maybe that would be the liberation. And so he tried that so hard that other ascetics began to follow him. Um, once again, he was just, he wanted it so bad. And so he had like a little following. He himself had become a teacher with a cult following of ascetics, people practicing self-mortification. Mm -hmm. Now, you had mentioned fasting earlier. Like, I thought about that self-mortification. And uh, I think about in certain tribes how they were in, will intentionally seek a harder life than they need to. I think of the Pitahan. Like, I, I mentioned the Peter Hunt a lot because I, I love that book about them. Uh, don't sleep, there are snakes. But anyway, um, how they would sometimes just not eat. It's not that they weren't fish. They could eat that day. And they would say they wanted to uh, get hard. And for them, that was stay tough, stay lean. Um, how people like St. Francis did the same thing. But people will seek harder paths to uh, bring that toughness out. Mm-hmm. That make any sense to you? Yeah, to remind yourself that those feelings of discomfort are often nothing that's really there. So 
just because I'm used to eating. I'm just saying. What do you mean discomfort's not really there? Okay, like, I'm used to eating three meals a day and whatever snacks I want. And then I go and have a day where I only eat two meals. I might feel like a perceived feeling of lack. I I did not get enough today. But ultimately, that's not true. Because I'm probably just fine. So, I guess with the fasting, it's a reminder of what is reality. I really felt like I was hungry, but then it passed. So how can I even trust my feelings that feel very real? Yeah. Yeah, we've taken the fasting every Sunday, and uh, we'll do it from sunup to sundown. And I've slowly been... One thing that was important to me is I just... I decided to do it one day. Teresa was kind of mad at me because it took her off guard and she had prepared some uh, food. <laughs> but then she decided she wanted to fast too. And I've I've tried to state clearly to Teresa something that I feel like, again, is in this story of the Buddha and something I've realized on my own is I cannot base my practice of something that I want something spiritual from on another person. Mm-hmm. So I can't fast with someone. If someone would like to fast on their own on the same day I do, then all right. But I need to remember I'm fasting. This is about me doing this. This isn't, is the other person cheating? Uh, Is the other person taking all the same fast as me? It's not what this is about. It's a personal thing and I need to keep it personal. Right. Because I'm not that way. That's not really my nature. My nature is I need to go to a class to make this happen. I can't just have my own practice. And I'll, I'll tell you, uh, that is probably a faulty way to do things because once you, once you don't have that though, it's a big crash. Yeah. But check this out. Linda, Linda, listen, listen. Linda, uh, the Buddha also needed other people. I think it's just a part of the journey. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's fair. fair part fair. of the the beauty of this part of the story is it really outlines so many of the parts that if you look at your life and think about what's really being said here, I think you'll see a lot of parallels. Mm-hmm. You know, like that was part of it. The Buddha needed that, and yeah. then the Buddha like was seeking it on his own, and he made a lot of mistakes. At this point in the story, he pushes himself so far and almost kills himself. This is almost the end of the Buddha's story right here. He starves himself till it said he could uh, reach towards his stomach and grab his spine. Like, it really emphasized this guy was like skin and bones. I mean, he was nothing. He had just really subjected himself to every discomfort he could find. Extreme cold, extreme anything. And The way I remember the story is the Buddha had gone down to the creek to get some water and he fell in. He was too weak and he almost drowned. He couldn't get out of the creek. Now, I've heard other stories where he was found underneath the tree that he attained enlightenment under. But at any rate, in the story, um, a girl shows up and her name is Sudhata. Am I pronouncing that right, you think? It's either Sujata or Suhata. I'm not sure. Sujata. Or you could write in and tell us. And it said this was the Buddha's 35th birthday on this day. And Sujata was a farmer's wife and a daughter of the village headman. She had this milk that there's this whole story, backstory of Sujata. And uh, the basics is that she wanted to get married and have a child. And she prayed, she was told to go pray to a tree god, which was this tree. 
And she prayed to the tree god and had a child and a great husband. And she was so thankful, she feel like, felt like, I need to honor this tree god that granted my wish. So on this day, I will come out, which happened to be the Buddha's 35th birthday. See, that's another part of the story, the coincidences, how they just kind of lined up, however you want to interpret that. Don't you see shit like that happen in your own path? Just coincidences, things that kind of line up like, oh, wow, this just happens to be this person's birthday. Or, or, or yeah, like uh, in my trip to Nepal um, that I talk about a lot, uh, I really didn't have much planned after I left the orphanage that I was at. So as it was coming up to be the day when I was supposed to leave the orphanage, I had to figure out what to do. I didn't have a plan of where to go or what to do. I don't know what I was waiting for. I guess just a, a sign of some sort. And ended up that I, instead of going to Kashmir, I went to Lumbini, which is the birthplace of Siddhartha Gautama. And, uh, and while I was there, it's, it's in southern Nepal, and when I was there, it was so ungodly hot and humid. The riverbeds looked like pottery. It was so <laughs> dry and hot. And I remember in the middle of the day, it was all you could do to just sit in the room. So you had, you know, shade and there wasn't air conditioning. You just had like a fan and you could take a cold shower and that was about all you could do. And here I met this man, uh, my friend Dinesh, and we didn't, I mean, we, we didn't, uh, spend a lot of time with each other at all. Like he took me on a walk and he like, um, biked with me up to the historical site and like occasionally we'd have some short conversations. And that, that man has made a significant impact on my life. Um, and I had no plan of going to Lumbini whatsoever. So yeah, getting back to your, do you ever feel like there's coincidences? Yeah. And I think I had a teacher one time, John Young with Wilderness Awareness School. And, uh, among so many great lessons he gave us, he said one day, whenever there's a coincidence in your life, write it down. (laughs) And he said, if you do that, every time there's a coincidence, don't just like, oh, I should write that down and forget about it. He's like, take it seriously. Put a notebook in your pocket, a tiny little stub of a pencil. You write that down every time there's a coincidence. And he says, then tell me how high of a number you need to get to before you stop believing in coincidences. <laughs> oh, wow. So again, this story, you know, this part of the story, like that's part of what I see here. Just happens to be the tree that Sujata prayed to to give her good fortune in her life, happens to be the day that she prayed many years ago. And it's now made a a ritual of bringing this rice to, this uh, milk rice called kira. And uh, this this milk rice was said to be so sweet that, what was it? She had like 800 cows? It was like the the purest, fattiest, creamiest milk. How'd they do that? They fed cow milk to cows in a succession so that, like, the resulting milk would be, like, super But what's the succession? Cream. Can you explain how that works? Oh, I mean, I, I know as much as you do looking it up. It's like she took the milk of 1,000 cows and fed it to 800 and then fed it to 500 cows and then fed it to, like, a smaller number until she got a milk from 
all those cows had like all that fat yeah. concentrated in it. I thought there was more to how it worked, but I guess that's not important. But yeah, this was a very special bowl of milk rice. And I've had kier and it is delicious. And I have too, haven't I? Yeah, it's a dessert you can get at Indian restaurants. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure it's not as good as what, <laughs> it's what she was serving. So here's the Buddha in the creek or leaning against the tree, almost dead, done. I can't even imagine what's going through his mind at this point. I mean, he's got to feel himself slipping away. He's got to realize I have not achieved the freedom I was after. And who knows how that felt. I imagine a man at the end of his rope. He had given everything. I mean, like, just people were blown away. It was looked superhuman, the amount of effort this man single-pointedly was dedicating. I will fucking get free. In the whole reading of history, I've never heard of a character who wanted freedom this bad. Um, and which to me speaks to his deep understanding of his confinement how he, you know, just really understood the things that confine someone. Because the first question, as we've said before in other podcasts, freedom is a funny word. Freedom from what? It's a rare person that can answer that well. Freedom to do what? I mean, people have all these kind of answers, and a lot of them are just kind of lip service, but a deep, penetrating answer. And that's what I feel like the Buddha was after, just this deep, deep understanding of freedom. And so he accepts this bowl of special milk rice from this girl, and it gives him the strength to continue his path. And at that point, he has a realization. Um, But before I explain the realization, the people that were following him, one of them saw him drink this, the special (laughs) sweet milk rice, and told the other ascetics, I told you, I told you, he was a prince. He's once a prince. He's always going to be a, sprint, a prince. He's spoiled. I knew he was going to break, and there he is drinking that milk rice. And they turned away in disgust. Like, and he didn't offer them any at all either. No. He was like, that was some good shit. Yeah. And I know you're uh, making a joke there, but also it's interesting because he, you know, knew they were on their own path and everything, and they weren't ready for what he was learning. You know, yeah. again, that kind of self-knowledge. But so Buddha ate that milk rice. And before I leave the topic of hunger, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit more about our fast day because the first thing I I gave up was food. So I could drink anything. I could drink beer. I could smoke weed. I could do whatever. And uh, I tried to pay attention on that day. It was a good day. And like hunger passed like a thought. It wasn't actual hunger. So I kind of breezed through the fasting from food part, but I felt bad at one point in the day. And that was drinking the beer with no food on my stomach. So the next week, I gave up beer for that day. I could drink it, you know, when the sun went down. Um, And I found, like, weed was kind of distracting when we smoked weed. So I gave up weed, you know. It just didn't feel like it fit with that day. Uh, And let's see. I've started a meditation practice in the middle of the day. And... I usually try to meditate like 20 minutes in the morning and evening, and now I have added like five minutes in the middle of the day. Next Sunday, I'm going to turn it to 10 minutes, just gradual. Uh, Now on Sundays, I don't have cream and sugar in my coffee. And that's changing the way I drink coffee. I'm starting to learn I prefer more often than I thought black coffee. As long as it's good. As long as it's good coffee. Thank you, Stephen, (laughs) from California. Thank you, (laughs) Stephen. And yeah, that... Slow, what I'm trying to move towards is what Jesus described in the Bible as fasting and prayer. I want a day of fasting and prayer. 
but I'm enjoying the process. You could say like, well, you're just kind of, you know, like this moving slow is just kind of, what's that about? And, you know, there's something to that. But I don't know. For me, I like the process of things. I like to do gradual things. Well, I've had of- better luck with that in my own life than the big leaps, even though there might be a time and I might benefit from taking more big leaps. But, yeah. Think of all the lessons learned in the gradual process. You know, there could be one big lesson or the process could be giving everything up and watching for these lessons. But gradually, they I think they reveal themselves and you're able to grasp it better. Yeah, it's kind of breaking it down into bite-sized pieces in a way. Mm-hmm. It's helping me kind of focus on the one thing at a time I'm giving up or increasing. But I hope to move towards like giving up uh, talking for that day, making it the entire day, not just like from sunup to sundown, um, and just have a full day of fasting and prayer. I don't work. I don't do any projects. I don't do anything distracting. It's a complete day of prayer. I've always kind of wondered what prayer is. People have told me different things, but I've never felt like I could pray. I never felt like I knew what praying was. And I'm kind of interested to explore that. It seems important. Yeah. And it's for one day a week. It's not... I mean, yeah. And if you can do it for one day, that's one seventh of your life. Yeah, that's huge. That's a huge thing to show yourself repeatedly like this is possible. You can do this. See, this is how it feels. And when you have broken down things in the past, whether it's a day outside or a day, a night spent in the minivan. And now look at us. We're like outside all the time living in a minivan. Um, It's amazing. It's just, (laughs) I mean... It is astounding how far I have come from, you know, living in a house, doing everything just like most people do. And now I'm wondering, like, something new was revealed to me today. We're walking with this group of kids, uh, and there's a creek, and the kids are like, oh, we want to go to the creek. It's such a beautiful day. And I'm walking in the creek, like, up to my knees, and they're kind of walking gingerly around the edge of the water, like, hmm, I dip my toe in there. And and I'm wondering, I'm thinking, is it me? Have I really gradually changed that much? And I think the answer is yes. Yeah. And the Buddha, to return to the story, did you have anything else you want to say about that? Mm-mm. So the Buddha drank that milk rice, and this is when he has his first real epiphany. All the other tools he had picked up from the other teachers were good tools, but they were just that, tools. This is the beginning of the Buddha's unique insight into life and his message. He had a memory of when he was back in the kingdom, and there was some agricultural festival happening in the kingdom, and he was sitting under a tree. I don't remember what kind of tree. I keep. I always want to think of it as an apple tree, but I could be wrong. But I feel like he was in an orchard. Isaac Newton. Huh? Ha 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 ha. Oh boy. And uh so he's sitting under this tree and he just has this feeling come over him that connects him to everything. He sees the insects and understands that that insect is part of him. He feels the wind blow and it seems to blow right through him. He realizes that that wind is part of him. He suddenly feels this expansion. He's not trapped in this body anymore. His consciousness just suddenly feels completely untethered. Uh, spacious, free. And he sits there in the state for hours as the agricultural festival happens near him and 
just doesn't phase him. And it said that there's so many times when nature responds to the Buddha and his story, but the shadows of the trees moved across the the land, but the, the shadow that he's under stayed fixed. It didn't move. And I feel like that's the power of the fixation of his mind. His mind rested. It's taming the ox from the Zen uh, parables or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's polishing the mirror. That tree, I feel like that fixed shadow was the fixedness of his mind. You know, he had brought it to a still state. It had finally, the water had calmed. There were no ripples in the pond. Mm-hmm. And so sensing this, sensing he was on the edge of something, he asked the universe, he said, can I receive a sign if I, I feel like I'm on the edge of waking up? If this is true, can I, can I now ask for something that I have not asked for? I've been sleeping on, on the ground. I've done everything I could to learn from every teacher I've encountered. I've starved my body. I've done everything I could. Can I please receive this one sign of encouragement that this is something? I'm on the edge. I'm at the door. And he puts a bowl in the river that he was recently in. Says, if it goes, this goes down the river, then uh, then I'm wrong. And if it goes upriver, then this is a sign that I am about to achieve awakening. And the bowl goes upriver, right in the middle of the river. And as he watches that bowl flow, right, taking the middle way up the river, that's his epiphany. That's <laughs> what that memory meant. It's the middle way. That was his first understanding from which all of his other teachings flowed. Life is a balance. And so, you know, this even affected his relationship with the thing that he wanted to uh, escape from. Diseases, old age, death, walking that middle way. It's not about being completely safe. And it's not about being careless and frivolous with your life, so dangerous that you just kill yourself. It's not about all the riches of a prince, that was distracting. And it's not about torturing your body. Your body's a blessing. Your body's the very tool you need to achieve this awakening. So that's when he began to explore what the peace program calls need level. What's enough? Mm-hmm. I didn't have enough. That's what almost happened to me in that river. What is enough? Yeah. And I ask that question a lot too. And I know that I'm nowhere near need level. I, uh, It's kind of comical to me sometimes how like, to some people, it appears I have so little. <laughs> and you feel like... I feel like I have so much. I feel like I'm cluttered. I feel just like there's so much stuff. And I, I know it's true. Yeah. And so it, it kind of is like a big epiphany for me to realize just how fucking crazy the rest of the world is. Yeah. Because what I'm doing is only the beginning. I know I'm not far down any kind of liberating path. But my God, it's just... That, that need level, that middle way. Yeah. It always cracks me up how many coffee cups people keep. Like, in the dozens, it would seem that you're constantly unable to just use the same one cup. <laughs> <laughs> what are some ways you've... Uh, what does the middle way make you think of? Some ways that that's, like, been in your life or things you've observed? Hmm... Well, I will say um, one thing that popped up into my head when you were talking about, like, the Buddha had gone, well, Siddhartha had gone so far. I don't know if it's an essential part because, of course, his 
um, epiphany about the middle way, but it's almost like you can figure out your need level by going all the way down or all the way to the other extreme of from where you're at and then working on adding it back versus like, I mean, I don't know. There's, it's like the whole 30 diet. Yeah. It's there's, there's things. Yeah, actually you're right. It's like the things that you do are gradual and they work. Um, but I think it too is like taking us down to a day outside, like one day a week being outside. That's pretty extreme for some people. Yeah. Before Teresa and I moved out of the trailer, we had done some backpacking. I think we'd even done some hitchhiking and we were toying with the idea of like, I guess what we were toying with without using the word was what's our need level? Mm -hmm. What can we do without here? Yeah. You know, how can we simplify our life instead of feeling all these obligations to things and stuff that we are pretty sure we don't need. We just haven't really explored not needing them. And so in part of that was we started having like a day outside once a week, which is kind of like the fast now. It's a day to prove if you can do this. It can even be fun. There can even be enjoyment. Like we didn't know how to bathe outside back then. I remember when it would rain, we'd run outside and find just some spot in the yard that we were naked and hopefully the neighbors couldn't see. (laughs) Who knows? But that was, you know, the only time we'd bathe. But it began to teach us how to be thankful in a new way. Right, yeah. Because it wasn't just a hot shower we took for granted. It was like, oh, rain. Ooh, it's it's cold, but it's kind of fun and exciting. And then that <laughs> night, having a fire. And... Oh, finding out that there's like one uh, corner of the, the chicken coop tiny house that you like converted and that was the best place to get your shower. Cause it was like semi-private and there was such a good flow of water coming off of it. Yeah. I mean, can you say that you're thankful for that? Cause I was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's something to be said for the incremental, uh, parts. And there was something you had said before that. I well, bet like you, you don't go all the way to the, I don't want to say the extreme, but like That's as it. far as you can go to, the least amount that you need and then add back. Yeah. So like the whole 30 diet, we had actually mentioned that back in escaping society in five easy steps somewhere around that time in our podcast, we were doing this whole 30 diet. And the idea, if you haven't heard of it, is basically it takes away just everything except the blandest. It's, it's, it gives you what the racists are calling white people food. now, The blandest shit you've ever seen in your life. So we're eating that for a month and then you're supposed to slowly add stuff back in. So it's kind of what you're talking about. Go to the extreme yeah, and then approach it from that way. And another way we did that was hitchhiking because we realized, Teresa, you realize we just traveled around in a backpack all the way up to New Hampshire and back. Mm-hmm. We've been out for weeks living like that. So coming from that end, doesn't a van sound like a luxury? Yeah. Like when you're hitchhiking, imagine somebody just pulls over on the side of the road, throws you the keys and say, hey, you want a minivan? You'd be like, Holy shit. This is like getting the Playboy Mansion with a pool. Yeah. I mean, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's not explore that. (laughs) So, yeah. So coming at it from that end, you're right. There's something really powerful. And again, isn't it cool that this is in the story of the Buddha? Mm -hmm. Because he probably couldn't have found what he now called the middle way and began to teach other people a certain level of renunciation. It's not asceticism. Yeah. It's need level. The only way he found that was to go to the extreme, to find the wall, the border, out on the fringes. It's like, ooh, remember the Albert Camus quote that I said? Yeah, when you go to the extremes, that's where you find the truth. Yeah, 
Always go too far. That's where you'll find the truth. We actually talked about that after the episode. Like, what does that mean? And yeah, I'm t- like, that's part of what I like about it. It's provocative. Yeah, because it kind of turned me off because I was like, well, what about the middle way? But hey, guess what? For the middle way to be impactful, for the middle way to teach you, it's just, it's not, um, oh, what's the word? Arbitrary. Yeah. There is a reason why it's the middle way. It's because you've already gone to the other end. Yeah. So and the that, Buddha went too far in both directions. So I, re, I think then my understanding would be that the middle way is, is kind of individual. Like you are going to have to figure out how far you're going to go and be really brutally honest. It is individual. And that's something Peace Pilgrim really spelled out well when she talked about need level. She said, everybody has a different need level. And I can't tell you what your need level is. If you have a family, you know, like you have to decide, um, which is what you're saying. Yeah. And it changes even your need level. It's not just you deciding. I was thinking, when I think about the middle way, it reminds me of when Teresa and I were walking, uh, doing the Mountains of Sea Trail. We walked 80 miles, mostly barefoot, along the Outer Banks. Oh, yeah. Miles and miles, days and days of beach. And if you've never slept on the beach, it sounds really romantic. Fucking beach sand is hard. <laughs> it's the damnedest thing. Your feet just go right through it like it's powder, and then you sleep on it, and it's concrete. Yeah. But anyway, there were some beautiful nights out there, though. I remember that I couldn't sleep because I was uncomfortable. I'd wake up. The waves would be pounding. It was night. We had the whole beach to ourselves. The stars were oh, yeah. fucking glorious overhead. It was just, like, beautiful. But regarding the middle way, when you're walking, you quickly learn that there's not every place on the beach that you want to walk, especially with a big, heavy backpack. You go too far away from the ocean, it gets really sandy, and your effort is just, you're digging through the sand. You're just working and working to hardly get anywhere. You go too far towards the ocean, and the water starts pounding you and starts sinking you into that soft, sucking sand, so you're constantly pulling your feet out of that. But there's this one band We called it the sweet spot, that you walk along the the shore and it's just the right consistency. It's soft enough that your feet are comfortable, just barely damp, but not sticking to your feet, not too hot, even when the sun's out. Perfect. It's the sweet spot. And further, a lesson from that is it would change. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a straight path. It was a curving path. And that curving path would sometimes move up the shore, would sometimes move out towards the ocean because everything's in flux the tide and everything. So it's also teaching us, like, don't get comfortable. It's not like you found the middle way. All right, relax. Pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention. Mindfulness. It's a constant It's the razor's edge. Yeah. It's a balancing act. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's just so many examples. I think about, uh, you know, modern politics, liberal versus conservative. Think about any idea taking hold too much in a community, a society, imagine a society that's gone too conservative, uh, too much tied to tradition. They want to do everything the way they've always done something. They've conserved every tradition. And the fact is, it's like that coastline. Things change. The climate changes. Uh, Every year is unique. The people change. And so too much of that stifles a community. It'll kill it. It'll strangle it. It's not adapting anymore. Adaption is one of the primary uh, tools for Adaptation, yeah. Yeah, surviving. Now imagine the community's gone too liberal. 
They don't hold on to anything. They don't care about anything they've done before. Everything is completely original, completely unique. Everybody does absolutely anything they want to. Well, that's going to sow a lot of division. A lot of that stuff they're trying, most of it is not going to work. It hasn't been tested. Every new thing you're trying has to be proven and tested. And before you can even get a chance to prove and test it, here's somebody else trying a new thing that hasn't been proven and tested. For long, nobody remembers the thing that works. So if you really need that thing to happen, it's not like anybody can snap and get it done. Nobody remembers what works. It's completely abandoned. The old ways don't mean anything. Either way kills a tribe. So I think about that too, you know, that middle way. If you could just really meditate and carry that lesson with you, that that sandy shore and thinking about all the lessons, you know, those like signs, 10 things geese teach. Yeah. Like that. Like what's a short holy book of the things you've learned from walking along the beach shore? I feel like that would be as holy of a text as anything that you could study. Yeah. Because that's the middle way. And if you just seek that balance... You know, the Buddha later in his life, he had a student that was a musician that asked about the middle way. And he said, well, you used to be a musician. You'd pluck chords on an instrument. What happened if they were too light, uh, loose? And he'd be like, they don't sound right. What happens if you tighten them too tight? The chord breaks. You got to find the middle way. It's exactly that. Mm -hmm. It's keeping things in tune. It's tuning your life, keeping your life melodious, keeping your life as part of this orchestra around you of events and sounds and experiences and keeping your instrument cared for. That's the middle way. Yeah. And for some people, for some people, that middle way um, maybe primarily comes from being a part of a community. Like we were talking earlier about, um, well, how can you learn something if you don't do it yourself? And like everybody is on an individual path. But I just read this book, or it's kind of like one of those weird comic book books for adults. That's <laughs> Anyway, there wasn't that much of a selection about Buddhism in the library. So this is what I got. It was called Dharma Delight, I should have known. <laughs> and it was from some guy, I don't even know, his, his name was like, Musho Rodney Greenblatt or something. (laughs) It sounded like you were just hawking something up in your throat. But anyway, um, that whole book was, I guess he was into Zen Buddhism. And (laughs) that book read like somebody that had, I don't even know if those are real stories or if it's all just like gobbledygook and that's the Zen of it. Is you're supposed to just like see it and laugh. At least some of that is bullshit like he's talking about vegetarianism and he I, now i didn't read the book but you gave me the impression that he was kind of tying vegetarianism to the buddha mm-hmm. like not just his yeah choice. because you're 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 causing harm and suffering in the world if you eat meat which see I mean, this yeah that's this is true, this is a limited of. understanding this is a, a failure to me of recognizing part of the buddha's message in yeah. that you have to find your own truth because it's okay if you want to be a vegetarian The fact was that the Buddha was not, and that annoys me when people ignore that. The Buddha had a different understanding of compassion. He had a begging bowl, and anything that could put in it, if somebody was like base enough to spit in it and hock up a loogie, he would eat it. That didn't happen because he lived in a culture where people respected holy people. They took it as a personal sign of their honor and good karma and good fortune to run up to a holy person, especially when he became widely known as the Buddha, and put something good 
nourishing in their bowl. Somebody would uh, just have to have lost their mind to hawk up a loogie because in that culture, it was like, you hawk up a loogie in a holy man's bowl, much less the Buddha. I mean, you're going to be born as a fucking wart on some fat woman's ass. <laughs> you're going to be born as her like uh, ulcerated hemorrhoid. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. I get it. You're going to be born. Yeah. <laughs> We've gotten so far away from the point. I'm struggling to get back, but go ahead. You had a point? No, no, I, I don't know. I was talking about like learning from community, but the thing is like you got to be really careful and aware and attentive of what that community is spouting off. They might be really um, supportive of you, you know, practicing loving kindness or whatever, like a safe space for people to practice this, but but life isn't safe. And like those people aren't necessarily on, you know, any scale higher than you. It's your scale. It's your experience. Yeah. And we'll talk more, hopefully in a a future chapter about some of the details that stemmed from when the Buddha asked himself, what is the middle way? How do I cultivate this idea? Um, But he did, it changed his relationship with uh, disease, old age, and death. Um, and it's really interesting, like, yeah, we'll, we'll save that, but it's interesting the, the epiphanies he came to of like, how do you liberate yourself from these things? It's not the transhumanist way. It's not the way of like trying yeah. to live as long as you can with more technology. Like he realized that underneath it wasn't disease and old age and death that was the problem. And that stem from that that middle way. I look at the middle way as kind of like cultivated ground. Now that he's leading, it's like it's like Carlos Castaneda. I know I keep always bringing things back to Carlos Castaneda. But the way Don Juan said, look, stop having sex, eat this way. He really like had him do certain things in life. And he's like, you're storing up energy. That energy can be turned into knowledge, but no knowledge can be had until you have the energy stored up. I look at the middle way is exactly that. Mm-hmm. He was trying to bring Carlos Castaneda closer to what might be like a need level, mm-hmm. storing up energy. Yeah. So I feel like that's kind of what the Buddha discovered with the middle way is he was storing up energy, leading a disciplined need level life. And from that fertile ground, understanding was bound to spring. It was the ripe ground. It was only just a matter of the seeds blowing in and growing. Yeah. So. And something else before I forget about the, the four... It was called the four passing sites. That was about the old age, sickness, death, and the ascetic. The four passing sites. Uh, you might, I mean, you might be like me and, you know, you, you hear that story and you, you think you understand it, but then do you really deeply understand what it means to not see death and sickness and old age in your life? Now, there are people, obviously, who have seen this a lot or, you know, even just impactfully, like in their very close-knit family. I would say but, almost everybody has. So what do you mean when you say that? I, I take it you mean something different. Well, I guess... Um, it's like the that story of the woman the, whose baby died and the Buddha said, I can help you go fu- gather mustard seeds from every house where death is not visited. Yeah. And so she realized that every house death had visited. Yeah. So likewise, every person out there has known, has been in contact with disease, with aging, and with death. So what do you mean that people aren't seeing it? I guess 
I was getting into like what the Buddha had to work on in himself with his fears, his very primal fears of death. Because we can see someone, whether it's a a pet or a family member, die. Like we could even be there for their last breath. But that's their experience. That's their death. That's not our death. So just getting to the real deepest root of what um, Siddhartha was trying to rid himself of. That's, I mean, like I was saying earlier, those, those things still worry me. It's not like I can be okay with my death. I'm not there. Yeah. You're not enlightened. Yeah. I mean, even when you think like, all right, I've, you know, I've kind of made some peace with getting older or some peace with, well, I may or may not, you know, get COVID or whatever. Who knows? Yeah. But, but that doesn't, it it doesn't get to the, like the root of the fear. To me, that's part of what the liberation is. It's like the Buddha didn't want some philosophy. He didn't want some kind of like, all right, I kind of get what it is. He wanted to uh, understand it so much that he was free of that fear. And yeah, that's a... a, Because, I mean, like, not to just be in a mood, but to like have such an understanding of what death is. It's like, oh, I finally understand what death and disease and old age are and... You know, it's it's kind of the veil of not understanding it that scares us. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a big thing that he achieved was uh, just that, you know, it, it got put in context. It got put in focus. Yeah. You know, and he's like, oh, yeah, it doesn't make actually this is what's making me afraid of death. And that makes no sense. And the, he, he em, embodied it, internalized it so much that it it freed him. It's like, I, I just went away. Yeah. I'm not pretending. It's gone. Now, on the opposite end, I was just wondering and musing, and this might not be the best fit for this, but I thought I'd just throw it in there. So I was just wondering, like, well, what are some other um, weaknesses that humans have? And the reason I was looking that up specifically was in uh, in relation to all this artificial intelligence stuff. Like, what are the weaknesses of human beings? Now, you could say, well, humans aren't as strong as, or they're not as fast as blank. But what are those things that are happening in our minds that can be exploited? That might be like what Mara would um, focus on to try to distract you away from being... Oh, you're getting into the next chapter. Yeah. You're going to make me talk about the next... Oh. No, no, no. So I um, I looked up, there was like a, a list of 10 human, most significant human weaknesses. This is from exploringyourmind.com. I bet that everything on that list is going to fall under one of three umbrellas. Okay. Craving, aversion, or ignorance. All right. Can we go down to one by one and I'm just going to say which one it fits yeah. under? Cowardice. Uh, aversion. Selfishness. Uh, craving. Antipathy. What the hell's antipathy? It's like, I think the opposite of empathy. Oh, uh, God, I guess that would be self-centeredness. Um, or like kind of despising. Ignorance <clears throat> and misunderstanding. Lack of concentration. Hmm. Ignorance. Distrust. Aversion? I don't know. 
impatience. Oh, that well, see, some of these, I wonder if they dig deep enough. Impatience could be a craving. You're, you're impatient because you're craving the next thing you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Or an aversion, like you're kind of not settled. You don't like having free time. Like, hmm. Yeah, I mean, these are... Yeah, there's no right answer. Yeah. I don't know. Envy. Hmm. Craving. That's an easy one. Resentment. Aversion. Dependency. Craving. And this is probably one that you'll like. Stubbornness. <laughs> oh, craving, probably. And I was just, you know, I was just thinking in in reference to all the AI stuff that's happening, the chat GPT and the talk of technological singularity. Like, this list is just, you know, just Google it. It's on the Internet. And if there is some sort of sentience that's lurking about... I mean, how easy would it be to just exploit any of these? And it's a list of 10. I mean, you could boil it down to the three different, uh, what do you call them? Kleshes? Or... Yeah, I think they're called kleshes. The The root of all negative emotions are those three, and the deepest root is ignorance, because uh, aversion and craving are, are based in ignorance, a misunderstanding mm-hmm. of what you are and what the universe is. And out of craving and aversion, all the other kleshes or bad emotions come. Um, it was said that people gravitated towards one of the three branches, and uh, I read a whole book one time that talked about uh, there are people that are like cra- that cling to ignorance. They're indecisive a lot. They they play dumb a lot. Um, that's their negative emotion that they will gravitate towards. They're the cravers that always want something. They're uh, they can be really sexual. The Buddha said he was a craver, and I feel like I'm a craver. Aversive pe- aversion people are always criti- are always criticizing, are always mad at somebody, are always blaming somebody, are always passing the buck. This sounds like me. I mean, <laughs> it's up for you to figure that out, really. I mean, it's not like you fit in one category. This isn't a gender identity. <laughs> There's no pronouns to go with this, but I'm Klesha fluid. It's more something to kind of like uh, a tool to use to kind of explore. Like, oh, all right, here's where I got a lot of work to do. Doesn't mean you don't have things going on with the other one. And each one has a opposite that's a benefit too, but I'm not going to try to remember that. I won't do it well. Yeah, no, I can, I can see that. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, your clay that you're working with. Does it have too much temper naturally in it? Does it, uh, like, does it not hold the shape and, and what are things that you can add to that? You -hmm. know what I mean? As far as like getting the right balance. Yeah, like cravers can be also very good nurturing people. There's a uh, element of of love and care in the craving. It's just the dark side or the light side. Averser of people with aversion. There's also a uh, organizational principle. They can be the people that make hard decisions. They can see how to improve things. They can help people face truths that they're uh, not necessarily wanting, but they need. That's the other side of that aversion that kind of that, that can also be mean and defensive. And uh, ignorance can also be uh, have equanimity, open mindedness. Like I'm not discriminating. I'm not discerning. It's all I see the, the bigger picture, you know, so there's the, the balance. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I think I'm starting to lose my voice and it's getting late. Do you have anything else you want to say about uh, the Mitul way? It's the Japanese. The Japanese is killing me. <laughs> you gotta have you gotta have water with Japanese. Aw, 
No, I really, um, I liked what you shared and, um, yeah, I think it's really nice to reflect on just little tiny bites of the stories because you hear it and it's like, okay, 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 whatever, milk or ice, whatever. But I mean, really thinking about why, why that, why was this handed down and what, um, what lessons can I take from it and implement in my life? Yep. So I hope you enjoyed our exploration and, uh, please write us any ideas or any, uh, any ideas you have about it. Um, send us a message and let's see, there's a couple things I wanted to say. Well, one thing, uh, Teresa's starting a pet sitting job tomorrow and she's going to be pet sitting for almost a month. She's going to be in the town and it's like two jobs. One of them, like the vast bulk of the time is at one place, both, uh, places in the city that she's pet sitting are right next to busy roads. Yeah. Like, man, every, I'm gonna... bu- every road is a busy road to us though. No, it's an actual busy road Yeah, well, yeah. by, by anybody's standards. Yeah. And, uh, so I'm going to visit her as much as I can, but I'm also going to come out here in the country because this is our last month coming up around here. And uh, then we're heading to the mountains. So I'm going to try to get as much pottery fired as I can and try to use my time constructively. But that's going to be interesting. So next time you hear from us, it'll probably be indoors. Boo. Boo. And uh, thanks again to Stephen from California. Uh, my God, he, he said he was going to send us an AeroPress and we get this box, which by the way, uh, the box would look like it had been opened. So, uh, uh it was opened. <laughs> Steven, if you uh, tried to send us any cocaine or anything, uh, they got <laughs> no, that. No, they got that. He sent an AeroPress, which if you're not sure what that looks like, it's sort of in an x-ray machine, probably sort of kind of looks like a bong, a pipe bomb. A pipe bomb. Too. I think it looks like a pipe bomb. <laughs> oh my and God. then he also sent us an iPad. So, <laughs> what kind of like trigger device does that shit look like? With like a um uh, external hard drive thing that has files on it of like different stuff that we can check out. That's cool, and uh, and also a bag of dog treats for Sherlock and a bag of uh, whole bean coffee with a coffee grinder, like a hand coffee grinder. Holy crap, that coffee is good, too. Yeah. And then he took <laughs> and he put it in a box and mailed all the suspicious-looking stuff to a guy named Gumby. <laughs> <laughs> but oh my God. we got everything but the cocaine. So that was awesome. Thank you so much, Stephen. I mean, I uh, like that was like a Christmas present. That, those were such thoughtful gifts, and they reflected so much, like, oh uh, that you've listened to our podcast, and it was really appreciated. We were uh, actually doing, we were fasting the day that we received that. I almost forgot to mention this, because for us, this was a whole week ago. It feels like a long time ago in the past that we received that box, because it was the day our last episode got released. We were fasting. We were sitting by our little fireplace in the dog tent and I brought that box in and we're like using our little light to like go through it. And I'm like, oh my God, what is that? What is that? <laughs> A tracking device? <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. Oh man. So unfortunately we, um, we have been waking up every morning in this, uh, like super warm morning weather and making fresh coffee for ourselves instead of putting it in our thermos. So maybe one day we'll have to try that. But damn, that coffee's good. Oh, my God. Yeah, and it's so good. It's helping me give up the cream and sugar. Yeah. So I've heard once you go black, you don't go back. <laughs> that may, in fact, be the case. 
Oh, do you have any of his, like, what he wrote to us? Because there was something... I don't. I forgot to try to prepare. Yeah. So that's why I'm thanking him now. I don't have a listener write in from him. There's something that he said, though. I don't know if you wanted to say that. What do you mean something he said? Oh, well, I don't want to ruin it. Forget it. Yeah. Uh, well, now... <laughs> something like we're all... Count- okay. We're like, we're all counting on you or something. <laughs> what do you got to say about that, Teresa? Wow, that was just such a an interesting thing to say, Stephen. We're all, is that what he said? We're all counting on you? I believe so, yeah. Well, I don't want to intentionally misquote, but that was the feeling I got. And uh, yeah, I'm just like, go, 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 Gumby, go. <laughs> Me. And Teresa. <laughs> I'm helping you out. I feed you. Okay, well, that, that was a whole anticlimactic thing you did, whatever that was. Well, no. Is that all you got to say about that? No, go ahead. You you say something. No, um, that's what I had to say. Okay. So thank you, Stephen from California. <laughs> oh, boy. And uh, I do have a listener write in. Uh, I just couldn't find Stevens. So I've got Gumby from the van, and he writes, <clears throat> I'm going to try to do a voice. Teresa, your butt smells. Oh. So, uh, Wow. You apparently made some enemies out there, Teresa. I don't even know what type of podcast care you're, you're smelling me on, but it's accurate. <laughs> and actually, that was not just an idle uh, insult. Teresa, actually, <laughs> somebody, we shared something on Facebook one time about our hobo uh, wigwam. wigwam, we called it. It was a shelter that we had built that at the time we were proud of. And uh, a woman that was an administrator of this page said something about like that. Both words were offensive. Wigwam was offensive to Indians, and hobo was offensive to uh, hobos. I guess poor people, or uh, <laughs> no, they were. It was offensive to hobos. Yeah, and so we were like, uh, Teresa wrote this whole long thing. She even tried to record herself saying it to explain that we are in fact hobos, and this is fucking insane for somebody that's not a hobo to say that we should be offended by the word that we are ourselves using. But somehow. In my confusion next to the campfire in the dark with my device, I sent a GIF GIF thing that was this, like, cartoon guy sitting on a toilet, and there was, like, a computer screen next to the toilet that was, like, reading whatever he was putting in there, and it said, your butt smells. (laughs) I didn't, I had no intention of sending that, but... So, I don't know what you were, like, uh, uh, looking at that even had that on the screen, but I know Teresa didn't mean to send that, because that's not her style. Yeah, but it ended the conversation. Yeah. (laughs) So, that's what we laugh about now. You ever want to stop a conversation? Like, you just just tell tell me the butt smells. That's kind of a conversation stopper. Yeah. Yeah, it's over. Yeah. Your butt smells. I learned that from Sherlock. Well, anyway, uh, if you have any questions or comments or any uh, thing that you would like to say about this episode or any other episode, you can contact us at www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in bodhisattva.com. Um, we got a Facebook page that we are I'm kind of finding ways now and then to use it. I'm figuring out this new Facebook a little bit. God help me. And um, we have a donate button on our website. So if you are moved, if you have learned anything, been entertained, been challenged, please uh, consider sending us a donation. If you don't have a financial donation or a care package full of suspicious devices, um, <laughs> then please send us a message. We really appreciate those. Yeah. And I, uh, I think... That is about it. Is there anything else that you want to say, Teresa? No, I'm good. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
Society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.